Welcome to episode 312 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Black. Welcome back to another episode. Brian, we got some cool stuff to talk about today. Yeah, shall we just jump right in? Boom, let's do it. All right, cool. A little bit of follow-up pup. So this week, or I guess by the time you're listening, last week, our good friends Rafa and Kevin, co-hosts of the Layout Podcast on the Spec Network, they are back from... I guess they're calling it their summer vacation. <laughs> Wait, you can take one of those? Yeah, what? Fuck, like, I wish uh, I knew. Yeah, adults, this should be a thing. Yeah, they're back. So they took a couple months off uh, from June till September. No podcast, but they just released their first episode September 6th. And hopefully they're back on that weekly rotation. So I listened today. Uh, they got caught up. And if you are looking for more design podcasts, be sure to give Layout uh, a listen after the show. Sweet. Uh, that's the only follow-up I had, but yeah, I I just listened to that episode on the way back from the gym, so it was great to hear him. Way to brag, Brian. So I just listened to their episode on the way back from just get freaking swole. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's a follow-up. Layout is back. All right, next week, uh, by the time you're listening to this, it will have already happened, Marshall. The iPhone 11 event will have come and gone. We will have seen the keynote. We will know all of the things that there are to know. But at the time of recording, we are still in rumor land. The world is our oyster. We can imagine anything we want to imagine. Mm-hmm. What are you excited about? Ugh. Well, based on the rumors, like not a ton. I'd, we talked about this a year ago, actually, almost <laughs> to the day. Uh-huh. But I didn't buy a new iPhone when the S versions came out. And I don't think I'll be buying a new version this time. I think I'm going to wait till 2020 based on the rumors. The rumor being that 2020 is new hardware? Yeah, actual new hardware potential, like fingerprint sensor under the thing, smaller notch, the micro LED screen potentially. So wait, I haven't heard about the micro LED. What's that? Yeah, I think they've I don't want to say too much because I don't really know what the fuck I'm talking about. But um, apparently it's a it's a better way of doing a screen that (laughs) unlike OLED doesn't have offset pixels. So you have less weirdness at the like anti-aliasing at like the the pixel level or sub-pixel level. Wow, okay. I'll stop talking now because I'm probably wrong on that. Anyways, <laughs> words, but, uh, words, it will look nice. Apparently it's supposed to be better. And I, I think it will not have some of the problems that OLED has as far as like ghosting when you're scrolling, say, a dark image with a light background, like black over white, you'll see ghosting if you like scroll up and down fast. Yeah, yeah, pixel smearing. Yeah, pixel smearing, sure. It's just because like the the actual pixels are turning off and on, yep. and it takes a little you know there's, there's a small delay for it to turn all the way on to white and all the way off to black, so you get that ghosting, and that won't be a problem with micro LED supposedly, but we'll see, we'll see. But uh, yeah, I don't think I'm gonna get a new one this year. I I am interested in. I don't care about the new cameras as of yet, but I'm interested to see what the hell they're gonna use this extra camera for because there's a third like super wide angle lens yeah if it's just for photography like no interest if they're going to use it for ar or something like that that could be cool i'm not sure how but so i'm, I'm interested in that but otherwise like yeah the the iphone doesn't appeal to me i'm more interested in like the tile stuff if that's actually going to be announced well say more about that for people who don't know about this rumor yeah i think i mentioned it before but in previous uh, so in the last event where they announced ios 13 One of the things they mentioned is they added some functionality to the Bluetooth, like find my stuff, where it's like, if you lose your phone, the phones will talk to each other and letting each other know through the network of iPhones that are being used by other people, small little Bluetooth packets will be sent and you can find your phone just based on the phones around it, right? And I was like, oh, that sounds like Tile. Uh (laughs) And other people thought the same thing too. That's basically how the Tile network works. And I was like, well, if they're going to do this with the phones, that's a lot of work just to have it do it for that. And there were kind of rumors that they would be doing a tile Sherlock, you know, killer. You know the term Sherlock, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You taught me that term on the show, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) So, yeah, if they're going to Sherlock tile, then why didn't they announce it when they announced all the technology they built to do so? So I think potentially they could announce it this time. And I'm excited about that because I would love to have that functionality be part of the ecosystem, like add it to my Apple TV remote, add it to every product ever, you know, like all of my Apple products and everybody else's Apple products should be able to keep all of our products safe and found together. Yeah, that's a that's a future I like. If they do it, my hunch is it will be expensive to like get integrated into that ecosystem. So maybe you do it incrementally. I think a tile on average costs like, I want to say like 15 to $20, I want to say. Maybe 25 at the tops. 
I can't imagine Apple charging anything less than twenty nine ninety nine for any single. That's how much I car- charge for like an adapter cable. So one of these things won't be less than a cable. Yeah. Thirty bucks. Yeah, that's pretty expensive. I'll have to see if they have a compelling use case besides the Apple TV remote falling between the couch cushions, which is not that big of a problem for me. But speak for yourself, son. I will. I don't have as many cushions as you do. (laughs) Cool. Yeah, what are you excited about? Of all of the rumors, there are, I guess, two that are exciting. One of them won't happen this year, which I don't even know why it's part of the rumor mill this time around. But they need to update these MacBooks. Like, the newest MacBooks are really, really, really bad. Um, Specifically, the keyboard. Everything else is fine. I don't care about the touch bar, whatever. I have no strong feelings, but the keyboard has been the biggest disaster of Apple products in my entire life. <laughs> like in which ways? So my my current work laptop, the space bar repeats, the U key repeats, the I key repeats, the J key repeats. Because you got a crumb or something under There's it? There's something in there. And this happened to the previous one that I had that I had to take to Apple and they replaced the whole top board of, of or like the bottom half of the laptop oh my god because the same thing was happening and then that keyboard started failing like every, it's just unusable and the only solution because of the way that they're manufactured is you go and give them your laptop for a week and you don't have your laptop for a week which for me isn't really Oof. an option because it's my work computer mm-hmm. and i could do a loaner but like yeah it's just not worth it so now i i have my laptop permanently in clamshell mode and i use an external monitor and keyboard now which is fine, but this is a horrible place for the Apple ecosystem to be where the computer keyboard is so bad that you don't even use the laptop. Like it's just, I might as well be using a Mac mini at this point, right? Mm -hmm. So anyways, that's on the rumor mill is like uh, this 16 inch MacBook Pro. Like, I don't know if they do that this this week, that would be surprising because that's normally like yeah. a January, March kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, They'll ha- they would have a separate event for that, I think. Probably. I would love it because I am I would love to update my, my personal computer. It's far overdue. And, it's time, yeah. And a keyboard that didn't like make me hate myself would be wonderful. Yeah. Because um, everybody, so I have my work computer and my personal computer are both like five years old because I never upgraded to the new ones because I heard horror stories about the butterfly keyboard switches. And all of these problems started with those butterfly keyboard switches, right? Yep. They had a new design that allowed the keys to be lower profile so that they could make the whole thing skinnier or like flatter. So it's smaller laptop. Great. That sounds like a great idea. Oh, wait, the keys are worse and they don't fucking work. And if you get a crumb under them, you can't use the key anymore. Maybe that's not a good idea. I'll take the extra couple millimeters, please. Form over function is what they chose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's been like years, years. So hopefully they'll either go back to a different switch or... I hear there's like there's like a membrane or something they're going to put in to like hopefully catch those crumbs so they don't screw everything up. I don't know. I, I've actually heard a lot of complaints about the, the thumpiness of the keyboard. I thought that was one of the things you're going to mention. Do you have a problem with that? It's a little bit harsh, the, the latest keyboard designs. I'm finding that a little bit more travel on the keys is a little bit more comfortable for daily use. So I'm using the uh, Microsoft's Surface keyboard, actually, like the ergonomic one. First of all, the ergonomic shape has been wonderful for my wrists. But yeah, like the other keyboard, the the MacBook keyboard is, it's like, I don't know. I guess maybe this is personal preference. It's it's too clicky. There's not enough travel. I can't, and like, especially with the new design, if it gets stuck, oh my God, it's like the most frustrating thing to not know if the key's even being pressed. For me, there's a big thing about the escape button too. Like not having a physical escape button. I hit the escape button like thousands of times a day. Probably not, that's probably not too much of an exaggeration, but like that's my <laughs> yeah. main way of like stepping out of nested groups and, and sketch, right? Yep. Enter to go down and, and escape to go up. And I, I hit it tons of times a day and not having that be a physical button, I think would be prohibitive to my productivity. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people will map that to their caps lock. For me, it's not that big of a deal just because it's in the right area, like the touch bar if I'm in that area, it does what I want to do with the escape key. Okay. But yeah, I agree. Probably the physical function row is, is the better solution for most people, especially maybe not for everybody, but certainly for designers and programmers. I think the physical function keys are probably superior. Well, give me the give me the touch bar, the touch ID thing on the far right, and give me a physical escape key on the far left, and then put the touch bar between. It doesn't have to be the whole length of the thing, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. That would be my my preference. Anyways, because I like the touch bar. I think it, there there are some good things there. Like if you if an app has leveraged the functionality there, like and and actually are using it for something useful, it's really cool. It's a really useful thing. I imagine if I were a video editor, I would like it more. Maybe I don't know, but um. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how much uh, use is. I know that there are people who have like freaked out because they forgot that their laptop was not muted, and then like a video started playing or something, and it's really hard to to mute the thing <laughs> uh-huh. in a panic. Yeah, yeah. So like two, two tap and like the tap area to expand the pinned row on the right is pretty small. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Let's talk a little bit about the rumor that they're going to drop 3D Touch. So the the rumor is they're going to drop it in favor of just the long press actions for all context menus. Haptic Touch, I think, is what they call the new thing. <sighs> I thought it was still 3D Touch. 3D Touch is the technology that includes an extra layer in the screen. That... Yeah, I think they're dropping that one. Right. Yeah, so they're not going to put that in the screen, which makes the device a little bit thinner. But they're going to use a a smart like long press gesture to do the same thing. So you're not actually pressing into the screen. But I think that gesture is going to be called haptic touch as opposed to 3D touch. Got it. Okay. Well, so the the rumors are they're going to make that switch, right? They're dropping all 3D touch support, and it'll move to haptic touch. Okay. I think that's my understanding. I could be way off, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's my understanding. I, I just want to get your thoughts on that change in general because I think 3D Touch was an interesting idea, but as far as the design of it, it is just inherently undiscoverable. Like you have to, I think we've mentioned this on the show even in the past, like part of your and my workflow of using a new application is literally just poking around the app and like pushing everything really hard to see if it does something cool. And that's just not something that most people do. Yeah, I think part of this move is probably because people had a hard time wrapping their head around the difference between a long press and a 3D touch. And now they're just combining the two into one. And and it's basically, it's right click, right? It's right click for your thumb. (laughs) is is the idea. So it brings up a contextual menu in most cases, and that's how they're advising people to use the the haptic touch. So it makes sense to me, especially if it's like, if it's a more understandable gesture where you don't, there's no like pressure, like, and it's pretty fine, specific amount of pressure you need to do 3D peak and pop well, you know, to like masterfully (laughs) execute that gesture. It's kind of like, it requires you to like get a feel for it, right? Long press doesn't. So I think this is probably more widely usable. Agreed. All right. The last last thing that I'm reading in the rumor mill is that Apple is considering over-ear headphones. I don't know how reputable of a rumor this is, but given their you know purchase of Beats as well as the widely popular launch and iteration of the AirPods, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if that's a natural evolution of that product line what do you think so you're saying they're going to be like basically over ear like apple branded beats exactly is that possible or is beats still the brand for that i don't know like i imagine the, if they did it it would cannibalize some but they might get people to buy apple headphones that wouldn't buy beats because of the reputation i guess oh, here, here's here's why they would want to do it right do you remember the hi-fi from back in the day the apple hi-fi yeah yeah, yeah. it was like a, a really fancy external speaker, stereo, basically. Uh, it didn't do very well, but Apple has a history of placing a high uh, bar with audio quality. I mean, like they got big off of the iPod, right? Music, right? And and that, that, that was part of the justification for the hi-fi is like, we want to give you the best sound for the, for the music that we all love, right? So because Beats is kind of known as like a bass heavy, not great headphones by people who like headphones, by the way, I'm not an audiophile. This is just <laughs> like the, this is the narrative I heard, I've heard from others. But yes. if you really love sound, if you're like a, I don't know, Bang & Olufsen or like, you know, Sennheiser or whatever, if that's your thing, are those good companies? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I think those are reputable, yeah. Okay, yeah, so if, if you're that type of person, like, I can tell the difference between those and Beats. You think that Beats are made for people who don't know any better and they're just bass heavy and they're good at bass because that's people listen to pop music, right? So if Apple wanted to avoid that reputation, they could brand their own headphones and be separate from Beats and say, like, no, no, we're, like, super, super high quality, right? You'll pay more because it's got an Apple logo on it, and, and we have better drivers. And... <laughs> it's going to be 500 bucks, $1,000, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But maybe they would do that? I don't know. I, I, my guess is that would be a much 
smaller audience than Beats, and that's why Beats is so damn successful because it's got a huge audience. Yeah, I kind of want to just see them try. Oh yeah, I want to see them try crazy things that they please are just haven't done lately. I feel like they've been in a pretty safe space for a few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, why do you say that? Because we had the same iPhone for three years again. Yeah, it's like four years of the same iPhone. No, I'm whining. Years. I like all of my Apple products besides that. God dang MacBook Pro keyboard. Everything <laughs> else is good. Like my life is easy because of Apple products. Oh, for sure. Yeah, so, I'm I'm deep in the ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not leaving. I, but that doesn't mean I can't complain. Yeah. Well, all right. By the time people have listened to this segment, uh, we'll already know the answer, so we can do some follow-up next week. Most of that talk will be completely unapplicable, non-applicable. Inapplicable. Inapplicable. There you go. But yeah, we can do some follow-up next week. All right. We have a couple of listener questions. Uh, Once again, these have been posted on the GitHub repository we made for design details. So if you have questions or feedback or ideas, open an issue on our repo. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. This has been really helpful for us to keep track of unanswered questions. And then when we do answer them, we can paste a link in and have that sort of archived for the record. Here's the question. Here's the answer. Uh, so please do that. Open an issue. We, we like that. And so we have a couple open right now. The first one comes from user Stark C, a.k.a. Cameron Stark. Cameron asks, I'm in my fifth and final year of software engineering, and I've done multiple web development internships. I was wondering what is the best way or most efficient way to look for and find job opportunities. Add some clarifying details, but is a developer that's starting to get into design. All right, so the question, yeah. Most efficient way to look for and find job opportunities. Now, Marshall, I know you've you've done this hundreds, <laughs> thousands of times. You are uh-huh. so seasoned uh, at job hunting. Yep. <laughs> No, I'm just joking. Yeah, yeah, he's joking. I've, I've, I've gotten two career jobs, each for a long, long time, and both times I knew a guy. That's how I got the job. It's like I knew somebody. Well, so let's talk about that, right? Like this is probably a very valid answer to the, the question, right? Is knowing people is a very efficient way to look for and find job opportunities. I would say it's an effective way. I don't know if it's an efficient way because you got to know a lot of people and most of those people aren't going to be able to help you at any given time, right? It's, it's only when the stars align and you're in the right place with the right person at the right time with the right skill set that everything can work out. But most most of the relationships you make will just be good for you to know the person and you'll learn some things, but won't net you a job necessarily. So I don't know if it's the most efficient, but it is effective. Did you, for, for the two people who helped you get the two career jobs that you have, was there anything in particular that you did to build that relationship or like go out of your way to do it? Or did that happen naturally? Yeah. So the first one, my first job started because I had a guest instructor come into my college to teach one week of a class, he recognized my potential. He offered me an internship at his little animation studio. I worked for Peanuts for like over a year, but uh, and the studio went under, but he got a job at this place and he knew me and they were looking to hire people. And he was like, hey, do you want a job at this place too? And I said, yeah. And then I was there for eight <laughs> years. And then I started getting into UI design and like design Twitter and like dribble and stuff. And I befriended somebody and he got a job at Google and he was looking to hire people. And he's like, hey, do you want a job at Google? And I said, yeah, let me let me try out for that. And I got it. Okay, so let's dig a little bit deeper there, because you mentioned that the first person, they recognized your potential. How did that happen? Did you have a portfolio? Were you shopping around your portfolio? Were you looking for opportunities to present it? Like, what was that link between having potential and letting the other person see that you have potential? Okay. That's an interesting question. I have to think back like 15 years now. (laughs) Rewind. Yeah. So like I said, he came in and taught this class for a week and the the assignment that he gave, I executed well. It was a partner thing. It was me and a buddy, right? And and the two of us did well. I think in my opinion, I was the better of the two, but like (laughs) I I definitely put in more hours. That's for sure. And so our project was the one of the better ones in the class. So he approached me and my buddy and I think, well, I don't think, I know after the fact he said, yeah, I was just throwing your buddy a bone because he was, he was like your partner on the thing and I didn't want to just hire you and not him. But the interesting thing is when we brought our portfolios into the studio to like show him our work and, and you know, maybe get the internship, I brought in like five pieces and, and my buddy brought in like 40 
and it was like 40 mediocre things with like a few good things. And I had like five really good things, right? Oh. I excluded all my mediocre shit because there's plenty of that. But I just like brought in, here's here's my best work. Here's the best examples of what I can do. And the other guy just showed like a bunch of stuff that was like as bad as I my bad stuff was, but I just didn't show that stuff, right? So editing, that was a big deal for the first one. I think that's a great point. Were the five things that you chose to present were they all things that you wanted to do more of or was it just the best of whatever you happened to have done it was a variety it was the best of a variety of things so i had i had a storyboard that was kind of cartoony i had a life drawing like a really high rendered like nude life drawing i had a character turnaround so like front side like t-pose kind of like a here's a character model but drawn how you would do of like, if you're going to start a cartoon, like this is what this character looks like from every angle. So every artist knows what, how to draw it with, with like an expression sheet. So like, here's what they look like happy. Here's what they look like sad. Right. And I, a couple other things I forget, but like those were, those are the types of things. Very, very, very different. Right. But they showed, Hey, I can storyboard. Hey, I can figure out what a character looks like from different angles. Hey, I can draw the human form in reality. Right. So I think that helped a lot. Yeah. Makes sense. I think that's also like, pretty you could apply that also to the product design side right like if you are preparing a product design portfolio is can you demonstrate the necessary skills within that field and then curate down to the best demonstration of those abilities i I guess like one caveat i have in any answer i would give to this question cameron is my perspective is probably the silicon valley perspective which is a small community it's a high density of people in tech and product designers and in that ecosystem, I'm not exactly sure where you're located. You don't have uh, your location on your profile. But in that environment, the most effective and efficient way to find job opportunities was to meet people. Um, that's how I ended up with my job at Facebook. And that's how we ended up uh, joining GitHub was just knowing the right people to have conversations get started in the first place. And how'd you meet those right people? Yeah, so the first, the Facebook was through this podcast, and then the second one was through this podcast. <laughs> so actually... So Cameron, do you do you have a podcast? Do you have a podcast? Yeah, start a design podcast. Have you considered starting one? I mean, that's actually not bad advice. I think there's not that many design podcasts. Uh, there's probably a lot of room for new voices anyways. And, uh, oh, totally. It is a wonderful excuse to meet people that you want to meet because lots of people want a medium to share what they know. And so if they're invited onto podcasts, uh, it's a pretty low cost way of sort of spreading what they want people to hear. So uh, invite people onto your show that you want to work with someday. It's a good idea. But yeah, just meeting people in general, right? Like I I think the common joke, I don't want to call it a joke because there's some validity to it, but like you don't really have a high success rate applying at a company like nobody that i knew really did that uh at least in the circle of people that i ran with so please like heavy grain of salt here like cold apply right yeah nobody would cold apply like the strategy was you find a job listing that looks interesting at a company that you find intriguing and you just do a little bit of research and figure out who is a person on that team that i can meet for coffee or i can buy them lunch and you don't send in your resume through the HR jobs page. You send your resume to this person by email with this context of, hey, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for sharing. By the way, blah, blah, blah. Like this much more human approach to it is just way more effective. I think that feels relatively universal, but um, I don't know. Maybe people have had success with these job forms in the past. I don't think that that was uh, something I ever heard of, at least in the sort of San Francisco environment or ecosystem is there an internal like recommendation thing like so for example if if someone applied and listed you as somebody they knew at the company would you get an email saying hey do you know this person can you vouch for them i don't know if it worked that way i know facebook definitely had a referral program so this is also a good thing to keep in mind cameron and other job hunters is a lot of people are incentivized to get you a job. So I think at Facebook, for people who successfully referred a product designer, they'd get like $5,000 for putting someone's name into a form. Mm-hmm. 
dollars, and then them getting hired, if they, assuming they get hired, assuming they get hired, yeah, and stay there for three months or something, ninety days. But so they're incentivized to put good people into that system, right? Like if you're referring people, you want to have credibility in those referrals. But there's so much money, at least at Facebook, and I'm sure maybe a few other companies are at that level. There's so much money on the table that the person who's referring you also has investment in getting you that job, right? So they'll fight for you a little bit harder if if it comes down to the wire or if it's a little bit uh, on the edge. Like this person is in a position where they can fight for you. And that's perhaps, I don't know, we can get into the gray area of ethics, but that's the reality is like people are getting paid thousands of dollars to refer people to jobs. Mm-hmm. So there's that and then you're in the development ecosystem. I can't speak to exactly how effective this is, but my hunch is that contributing to open source as a developer is probably a great way to build some of those relationships in a way that feels very, very natural, probably more natural than meeting someone for coffee. Like I think in the developer world, opening a pull request on somebody's repository, fixing a bug or a typo, or something uh, along those lines, something you know, low cost, or maybe just improves that person's uh, life a little bit in that project. That is a great way to build some relationships. I, I can specifically think of a handful of people when we were building Spectrum uh, a lot more in with open source contributors before we joined GitHub. You just start recognizing the same names over and over. Like, oh, this person keeps fixing typos. Like, mm-hmm. that's very interesting that this person is finding time of their day or time in their day to, to do this. I'm going to poke around. I want to see what else they're working on. Like, this stuff just happens very naturally when your name is in front of people's eyes over and over and over again. Yeah. And insert yourself into the community you want to be a part of, right? Like, eventually, if you do enough good work, people won't be able to ignore you, right? Yeah. You'll you'll develop a reputation for yourself as somebody who does good work and, you know, it, it has the ability to stick around for a while, right? Yeah, exactly. Like it can't just be this one-time thing, right? Like there has to yeah, be some leading fancy some demonstration of investment in that community. So, but generally, like I think the the moral of all of these stories is you need to stand out in some way, right? Like you need to do something more than just be a profile on LinkedIn, right? Yeah, more more than just a, a resume getting submitted through the HR form. Like you can do one step above that already separates you. And like if you go a couple steps further, you're going to be in the top 1% of people that are putting in the effort to build human relationships with the people that are doing the hiring on the ground, you know? That's it. And that's the exact point is like every everything that we've mentioned all has the same thread of like make a human connection with someone else, right? Yeah. And that'll go so far. I think the the hard part about that is there is a little bit of a like lag in the time that you put in and when you'll see results from that time. It is a grind. That's what I'm saying. Like all these are effective ways, but they're not efficient. I'm not sure that there is an efficient way to get a job other than like be a temp worker, right? Like, yeah. That's the only surefire way to get a a job really efficiently, but. That ain't a good job, right? That's not what you want to stay at. So, yeah, if you if you want a good job, you, I, I think the better question would be, what are the most effective ways of doing it? Which is what we have listed, or some of them at least. Let us know if that was helpful, Cameron. Hopefully it was, and hopefully you also recognize the uh, biases that we have. I think we called those out very, very explicitly. My narrow, narrow experience has taught me these two things. Hopefully yeah. they apply to you. If not, I'm sorry. Maybe, maybe we could have somebody on to talk about this. Yeah, that'd be good. So if other people that are listening disagree or have something to add, tweet at us or add on to this GitHub issue, yeah. All right, let us know what you thought, Cameron. Um, Hopefully that was helpful in some way. We've got one more question. This one is getting into some nitty gritty. Uh, This question comes from Nikita Volobov. Think I got that? Dead on, sure. Perfect pronunciation. Hope I pronounced that correctly, Uh, Nikita. Question is, do you use any tools to automate your design process? Says aside from the Figma, uh, the big tools like Figma and Sketch, do you use any tools that help you more quickly uh, while iterating on new designs, perhaps something like Carabiner or Alfred? So Carabiner was a new one to me, and I looked into it, and I was like, I don't think this is my kind of thing. But Alfred, for sure. I definitely use Alfred as a spotlight replacement. I only have one workflow, though, and I was telling Brian about this before. I have exactly one workflow, which is Alfred's kind of like 
scripting uh, method. Like you, you can kind of connect nodes of script and actions and stuff like that. It's really powerful and cool. But I only do one thing with it, which is toggle dark mode on and off, which changes not just my system dark mode, uh, like for the OS, but also switches sketch and changes my desktop color to be black or white, depending. Yep. Other than that, I don't really use Alfred for anything. But Keyboard Maestro is great. I think I've mentioned that on the show before. It's basically a really powerful way to override keyboard shortcuts or add macros to your keyboard shortcuts. So you can do a more advanced uh, function, like multiple steps in a thing with a single keyboard shortcut. That's really useful. Brian, do you have any cool things? Sorry, not cool thing. Sorry, I don't want to get into that section. Do you have any? Do you have any things that you use to help you iterate on your designs? Yeah, I, I'm a little bit confused by the question because it says aside from the big tools like Figma and Sketch, but I'm wondering if Figma plugins and Sketch plugins count because this. I'll allow it if you'll allow it. So here's one thing that I kind of want to get on my high horse about building Figma plugins is a god dang superpower. It is <laughs> really, really wonderful, and one of the things that I came to realize is that a plugin doesn't have to be something that you submit to the directory. You can just do local things to automate what you're doing anyways, even if it's something super specific to your use case. So I built like two or three plugins that are only on my computer. Like nobody else would ever need them or find them useful, mm-hmm. but they're so useful for my process. So I'm I'm whittling away at a list of sort of general rules to notice that call for you to build a Figma plugin. And it's basically, if you are copying data out of Figma, if you are copying data into Figma, and if you are toggling the visibility of layers over and over again, or most broadly, but not as often, if you're using your mouse to do things, you should probably just build a plugin for it. So I built a plugin. I was tired of copying and pasting hex values out of Figma into other places where I do work with engineers. And I was tired of doing conversions of hex to RGB, just like clicking that drop down toggle. Mm-hmm. So I just wrote a plugin that says, given a selection of layers, like output all the hex values and RGB a values, like, and it's just put it into a text field that I can copy and paste all at once instead of going layer by layer. Uh, <laughs> so little <laughs> things like that, which so specific to what I'm doing right now, but if you can learn a little bit of JavaScript, it's just the the Figma plugin ecosystem is really good and you can do stuff like that. The other one I had was I can run a command that opens a prompt where I can just type in a comma separated list of layers. And given my selection, it will make sure that those layers are visible and every other layer that doesn't fit that list is hidden. Oh. So if I have a symbol where I'm like constantly, like if I'm using a symbol for like a list item or something, and that list item sometimes has this badge and sometimes has this sub-label, and I want to use that in my mocks and have it be a little bit different with each one, I use this plugin to just very quickly show and hide groups of layers at a time just by comma-separating, like, you know, B is my bottom border. Like, if I type B, it should enable that and disable any other border, that kind of thing. This is crazy. You've shown me this, or, or at least told <laughs> me about it. This, you, you haven't gotten into the detail that's that's present in this thing, so yeah. I don't know if you want to, but it's fucking insane what you've done. I think it's also been useful to recognize, like, when my workflow is bad, like, okay, that particular one, like, maybe the components could be structured better, so in any way it's been illuminating, but without having to spend the time to refactor all of my components, I, I can whip up this little plugin that saves me time. So I don't know. I, I'm kind of on my high horse about that one. Like I think more people should be building these internal plugins and, and solving their own little problems. Like watching other people use Figma and copying and pasting things in and out is, is frustrating now because it's pretty easy to get around that. So that's, uh, that's my soapbox. Yeah, if we're, if we're going to talk about uh, plugins, well, actually, before we I talk about sketch plugins, because you can cover the, the Figma side, I'll get the sketch side. So one thing I've mentioned on the show before, but is, I'm a big fan of this little Mac utility, is called Yoink. It's a little window that as soon as you start dragging anything, it uh, pops out from the side of the screen, and you can drop stuff into it, and it stays on top of every single window. So you can go around to different windows, and it's basically a little drop area that holds on to files or text snippets or whatever you want, folders, 
as bundles or individually, and it's great for exporting mocks from Sketch. So you select an artboard on the left, and the preview of it shows up on the right. You just drag that preview over to the little window, the little yoink window, and then go drop it wherever you want to without having to save it out to a folder or something like that. Because a lot of times you just want to send it in chat or whatever. Yep. You don't have to save it to disk. So uh, yoink is really great, and that makes my life super easy a lot of the time. But as far as plugins go, the ones I use that are lifesavers are Artboard Manager, which automatically snaps all of your artboards to a grid and reorders them in the layer list according to their position in the, on the canvas. I use layer tools a lot. That That's mostly for like appending or prepending or changing layer names. Runner Pro, obviously I use Runner. That's great for inserting symbols or running any sort of scripts or anything that you have going on. I'm a huge fan of Symbol Organizer, which... Uh, it's kind of like Artboard Manager, but it organizes all your symbols by your naming convention and groups them. Oh, that's nice. And and puts a little label to the left of each group, and you can define whether you want them in columns or rows and how many items will be in a row before it wraps. It's great. It's really great. All you just have to do is do a keyboard shortcut, and it remaps the entire symbols page and names everything. It's really nice. And I guess the last one I would mention is a little one. This is like a, a, a tiny one that I found really useful. It's, it's called Renamer. And basically, it allows you to select multiple layers and rename all of them at once in an easier way than the layer tools allows you to. Yeah. Yeah. I had to use this the other day. I used uh, Rename It is a, the name of the Figma plugin that does the same thing. But you can do like a little bit of like variability so I, I think you can do like percent capital n if you want to increment by like a certain value of numbers or something so like oh. i wanted a list of layers that was like layer one layer five layer ten and i could just script that with this renaming plugin based on like some variables like percentage capital n i can't remember but it has documentation like those kinds of things are just so nice it's like save me a tedium right it's not even that it takes a long time. It's just the tedium of it. Yeah, yeah. Especially that, that renamer one is really good for making sure my files don't have any like rectangle five named layers, right? So I can just search for a rectangle in the filter bar at the bottom yeah. and find all of my unnamed layers or, or group or something like that. And like, oh, no, these are all just like bounds layers. Let me re rename all of them bounds and done, right? But yeah. I guess maybe that's a lame list of, of productivity things, but yeah, the majority of my productivity happens within like within those apps uh, of using plugins, um, not necessarily external stuff. Yeah, I think I'm the same way. I can't think of too many external things that are really saving me a whole lot of time or automating my process here. I mean, there's like small things, you know, like I have all my screenshots saved to Dropbox so that those are accessible on all my files um, and like it copies the link to your keyboard whenever you take a screenshot so you can share it with anybody. Like little things like that are kind of nice. Ultimately, I think one of just the, the biggest productivity things you can do is learn keyboard shortcuts and never go into a menu ever again, right? Yeah. Never drag layers around if you don't have to. If it's not the most efficient way to get that layer around, like use your keyboard, right? Never take your fingers off of the keyboard if you can avoid it. That's been really helpful for me and I move so much faster. It's like I, I compare it to playing a piano, right? And it's all it's all muscle memory. So, like I can play a song with my eyes closed, but if like you change what the keys are, it's going to fuck me up, right? Because I'm I'm that like muscle memory about about how I work. Are you the same way? Yeah, 100%. I think this goes back to this, I don't know, like it, it's some sort of heuristic of when when do I need to be changing my workflow or build a plugin to change my workflow and that's am I taking my hands off the keyboard to move something, to nudge something, to adjust a value? to toggle something on and off, to like get something from my design tool to another app. Like anytime anything like that's happening, it should be firing flags in your head like, oh, this could be more efficient or I could have it accessible at some shortcut. Like um, Figma's is really great. You just type command slash and then it focuses a search field where you can search for any command. So it makes it really fast to get to any command no matter what the name is. You don't have to remember specific keyboard shortcuts. You just remember the command slash. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So little things like that. Like get used to get used to doing everything in Figma if you use Figma with command slash. Like start there. Um, Sketch is probably Sketch Runner, I imagine. Yeah, the more time you spend on the keyboard, the better. This is why I was complaining about the escape key, the physical escape key earlier. It's because like I don't 
click the layer list, I like hit enter or I hit escape out of it or a command click on the, you know what I mean? Like I, I try to do the most efficient uh, flow possible. And a lot of times that happens to be on the keyboard. Yeah. So anyways, hope that was helpful, uh, Nikita. Um, if anyone listening has their own like automation hacks or, or tools that you're using to automate your design process, let us know. Pay some links on this issue. Yeah, we, we should grow this. I think this is a good opportunity, the fact that ours are a little bit limited, but maybe other people have good ideas or, or good experiences. So post links in this issue or tweet at us. It's issue number seven for your reference, but I'll put a link in the show notes. Cool. Should we wrap up and get into some cool things? We should. All right. Do you want to go first this week? Sure. All right. So yeah, my cool thing this week. Brian, uh, have you ever heard, well, this may be a bad question because I showed you before the show, but um, there, you had never, before I told you about it, heard of an artist called Sean Wasabi. No, I had not. This is a, a guy I've known about for a long time, like for years and years, but I was recently reminded of him because, oh, this is a weird thing. I've been watching Guitar Hero players on YouTube. Like, <laughs> Yeah, that is a weird thing. It is a weird thing, but yeah, are you familiar with the song "Through the Fire and Flames"? Yes, it's like the the hardest the, the song. hardest one, yeah, right, yeah. right. So I, I've been watching a couple creators. One named Asai, like the the berry. Um, another one named like Randy Ladyman or something like that. They hold the world, world records, and they're just insane. Like they can play that song literally blindfolded, a hundred percent full combo. It's amazing to watch. I just, I, I watch the notes go and I go, that's impossible. But they do it. Anyways, he was playing, people send Asai like meme songs because you can make them, there's like a third party Guitar Hero thing where you can make your own songs and chart them and everything. So people will make like meme songs and send them to him. And one of them had this snippet, uh, it was like a mashup. And it. I was like, what is that beat from? That's a fucking sick ass beat. What is that from? I know that. I was like, oh, Sean Wasabi. (laughs) We get back to the start. Okay. So Sean Wasabi is a musician. I don't know how to describe what he does. (laughs) (laughs) What is this wizardry? So he's not a DJ. I would say he's like a producer who plays his beats, but he uses a board. Now I'm going to describe the board to you. Use your mind's eye, if you will. Imagine... A, a white square slab, kind of like a butcher's block, but white plastic with a matrix of buttons, circular buttons on it that are eight by eight buttons. So you have 64 buttons in a square on top of this block thing. Each button has a like a little plastic, clear plastic light uh, ring around it. So each each button can light up with LED different colors. Yep. Each button can be assigned a sound or a function So when you hit the button, it plays a sound. Or when you hit the button, it changes the rest of the board to a new configuration or whatever. And also you can set it up so that when you press this button, it makes the button light up a color or the buttons around it light up color. You can like create whatever patterns you want to, right? So this is a this is a special board though. So the the interesting backstory behind this is it's called the MIDI Fighter 64, 64. Possibly because of like retro, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a reference to like Nintendo 64, but also it has 64 buttons, so it works out. But they didn't make very many of them. They, they, it was like a small company that made them. They only made a few. They made one for Sean, and they gave it to him. Very expensive, but they gave it to him. His car got broken into, and someone stole it. Oh, no. So he had to ask for, and it was a prototype that they had given <gasps> to him. Oh, yeah. shit. But he uses this thing to great effect. He writes these banging little bops. They're so good. And the the one I'm going to recommend, or the two I would recommend actually, are Burnt Rice and the other is Marble Soda. Burnt Rice is the fucking banger I was talking about earlier. It is so good. The reason I'm recommending this song specifically is because not only is it banger, but you can tell what each key is doing. You can like, the way the song starts off, you can very easily map Oh, when he presses this button, that sound happens, right? But it gets really fucking crazy, and it's hard to follow, but you can understand that he's actually playing this. He's maintaining the beat himself. Yeah. And his right hand is doing something completely different from what his left hand is doing, but he's, like, maintaining it all and and creating a hell of a song in the process. So, Sean Wasabi, that's my thing. So I'm on the MIDI Fighter website, and this is this art form, or genre? No, not a genre. This, yeah, this practice is called finger drumming. Finger drumming, okay, sure. So Sean Wasabi is very good at finger drumming. 
That's a thing. I bet you could. I bet there's a nice YouTube uh, rabbit hole there. Oh yeah, um, he's not the only one who does this finger drumming thing. There's there's other artists that will probably show up in the recommended uh, like up next feed if you are watching on YouTube and. Many of them are very good. What this reminded me of was, so when Marshall showed me this video, I said, oh, this reminds me of Madion, who is a French producer. And let me send you this video, Marshall. We'll put the link in the show notes. But Madion blew up a few years ago, like, I don't know, nine years ago, maybe, when he put out this video called Pop Culture, which is a live mashup doing finger drumming. And this video, actually, now that I've pulled up this thumbnail, I remember this is the first time I ever saw anybody do something like this. But uh, Maddion's pop culture was just so mind-blowing at the time. And people have gotten really good, apparently. And this is the board I'm, I'm more familiar with that you see more often, where it's kind of like mushy white gel yeah. buttons that have a light behind them instead of like a hard plastic button with a ring around it. Anyways, oh, it's a cool fucking genre. <laughs> cool. My cool thing this week is some new hardware. So I haven't upgraded my computing accessories in a long time, but this week I got the new Logitech MX Master 3 mouse. Oh boy. Marshall, you've used the MX Master series in the past, yes? Oh, it is It is my favorite mouse, mostly because of the dark field technology. I had a, I had a glass desk at the time, and it was the only mouse in existence, as far as I can find, that, that has a technology that allows you to use it on a clear glass surface. But also, it's just a really good mouse. Yeah, so they just released the MX Master 3, and so I'm coming in at the newest of the new off of the Magic trackpad, which is still useful. But one of the reasons I've always been hesitant to move off of the trackpad is for the multi-finger gestures like expose and then being able to five-finger sort of flick to get to your desktop. And I was always nervous about getting rid of that. I use it so much in my workflow. But this new MX Master 3 has a cool little button. I don't know how to really describe this, but kind of where your thumb rest is, you can push down in a way that wouldn't accidentally trigger just by naturally gripping the mouse. But if you press that button and then move your mouse up, you go into expose, you can move, uh, and I think you can program the other directions to, to do other things on your device. Mm -hmm. So anyways, mouse is great, but here's one of the things that I have been itching for and I didn't even, I feel like I've jumped into the future and that is a feature called Flow, which is part of Logitech's growing ecosystem of products, which I had no idea this even existed. But Flow is a way for you to use one mouse and keyboard across multiple devices, including Macs and PCs. So I have a Mac and a PC on the same desk and they each have their own monitor. And sometimes I use both monitors for one computer, but usually I'll use the left side as my Mac and the right side as my PC. And it was always frustrating to maintain two keyboards and two mice, uh, one for each side. So this system called Flow, which I think is maybe a year old now, but now it's getting built into all their newest products, lets you use your mouse across both. So you literally drag your cursor to the side of the screen uh, for me my right side and the mouse on the left edge of my Windows PC will start to move. So I can just really quickly move my mouse in between. And the cool thing is it also integrates with the keyboards. You can copy and paste across computers and across operating systems. So you click on your Mac side, Command C, click over on your PC side, Control V, and it works. And it works. That's yeah. crazy. So I'll have a follow-up because I ordered the MX Master 3 and the MX Keys, I believe is their new keyboard. Mm -hmm. And the keys hasn't arrived yet. So I've just got the mouse working, but it has been awesome so far. It's like jumping into the future where I can <laughs> use two computers with one mouse. And I and the thing is, you don't have to like. It has the little button switcher on the bottom of the mouse. You know, you can press a button to switch device. But here, I don't even need to. I just drag it to the edge of my screen. It interprets that I'm trying to switch to the next computer, and it does that uh, automatically. One thing I really like about these mice, and and others have the same feature, but I think Logitech is the best at it. Is the clicky scroll wheel and the smooth scroll wheel at the you know in the same mouse like you can just switch back and forth between those two modes that's so satisfying do the old ones have it where it does that dynamically it's a button just behind the scroll wheel like just under the scroll wheel okay so you click it when it's when it's in it'll go smooth when it's out it'll chunk yeah so i was trying to figure out like what's the difference between the newest one and the oldest one i think that's one of the new features is they have a dynamic version of that based on the velocity at which you scroll so I can have mine in the chunky mode, 
but if I flick it fast, it automatically transitions to the smooth mode. Oh, interesting. That's even, that might even be better. And I think you can control the threshold of that velocity. So you can set it to be like pretty high friction. Oh, it uses magnets to do that. It's not a physical thing. It's a magnet. Oh, wow. So it's super smooth. It's really quiet. Oh, man. This is like state-of-the-art mouse, man. For 100 bucks, that ain't bad. Yeah. So are you upgrading, Marshall? Are you buying this right now? No, not for my <laughs> PC. I might get it for my, I might upgrade my work, but not, not on my home computer. My home computer, I use like Razer Chroma and everything has pretty lights on it. And I, yeah, I can't yeah. give that up. That's all for gaming though. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you still probably want a separate gaming setup. This is mostly for, I think, like work and productivity and uh, like that copy and paste between computers. Like that stuff's really useful, not necessarily as useful for gaming but but it's just a super comfortable mouse it's got a good weight to it yeah it feels yeah, great it holds up really nicely anyways yeah well serendipity there i think it's the best mouse humans have uh, ever been able to manufacture i think it's amazing so good thing that we uh, we both came to the same conclusion brian yeah i'm very excited so that's a cool thing that's it we did it we did it it's kind of long for not having a whole lot to talk about huh yeah we thought that this would be a short one but that was uh episode 313 looks like it's about an hour we hope you enjoyed it let us know what you thought we're on twitter at design details fm tweet at us we love your feedback thoughts uh reactions of course if you have ideas on things that we missed in our listener question section please let us know on our repository for design details all the links are in the show notes but you can just go to github.com slash spec fm and you'll find it there Otherwise, if you just have a question or feedback or suggestions for us, please open an issue on our design details repository that helps us keep track of what's been answered and what's not been answered. And it has this really beautiful side effect of when things get answered, we can start to build up sort of a log of that question and answer call and response. And like, we'll close out the issues and uh, everything will be searchable on Google. It's going to be great. So please do that. If you have listener questions, uh, let us know on the repository. Sweet. All right. Uh, if you need more podcasts, of course, go to spec.fm. As we mentioned at the beginning of the show, our friends Rafa and Kevin have rebooted uh, their show Layout after coming off of a summer vacation. So go check out Layout right now. That's at spec.fm, along with a bunch of other podcasts for designers and developers just like you. Just like you. Just like you. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we'll catch you this time next week, and we will have the full Apple story, I guess. Yeah, it will be very stale and a dead horse that has been beaten much by the time we get to it, but uh, we'll, we'll show up with our cold takes. Cold takes. A week late. Yeah. All right. Till next time. Bye. check our time 50 49 wow okay <clears throat> excuse you <laughs> yeah that was my heel your replication <laughs> that's the that's a, that's the the key to like if somebody thought you farted it's like no no no. i can replicate the sound <laughs> i can do it i can do it at will it's my heel on, yeah, yeah, on yeah. the stool <laughs> it's like um when you'd go to a classroom and sit down and the chair would squeak so it sounded like you farted uh-huh. and the first thing you'd do is like fake adjust so that you could just do it again be like nope we're good it's just yep. the chair that was that was not my butt that was that not was another in, inanimate object making a sound yep. let me let me do it again so i can prove to you that was not me farting <laughs> <laughs> replication yeah exactly <laughs>